Caring for someone with cancer is like a team sport. It takes different players, each with their own expertise, to create a winning strategy for the patient. No one knows the importance of a team better than our guest today. Sandy Elderson is a baseball legend and a longtime executive of multiple baseball organizations, most recently as former president of the New York Mets. When he came to MSK as a patient close to eight years ago, he didn't just have one doctor. Like many MSK patients, he had several kinds of experts, what we call a multidisciplinary team treating his cancer. Today, Sandy will publicly share his personal cancer journey. Let's talk about it. Hello, I'm Dr. Diane Reedy Lagunes from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and welcome to Cancer Straight Talk. We're bringing together national experts and patients fighting these diseases to have evidence-based conversations. Our mission is to educate and empower you and your family members to make the right decisions and live happier and healthier lives. For more information on the topics discussed here or to send us your questions, please visit us at mskcc.org podcast. Sandy Alderson came into the world of baseball as both a former Marine and a lawyer, and in fact, knew very little about the game. It was Sandy, the outsider, who helped introduce his protege, Billy Bean, to the world of analytics and used a statistical method that would transform the game of baseball, which is described in the book turned movie Moneyball. Throughout his 40-plus year career in baseball, Sandy has worked with a number of teams, including the Oakland A's, the San Diego Padres, and the New York Mets. It was during his time as general manager with the Mets that he learned he had cancer. There is never a good time to be diagnosed with cancer. And in Sandy's case, the timing was particularly challenging. It was fall of 2015, and the Mets had just entered the postseason for the first time in almost a decade. Sandy waited until after the season was over to share the news with the team, but he kept a specific diagnosis private from the public eye. Today, he's ready to share his story. As his oncologist, I've had the honor and pleasure of getting to know Sandy over the past eight years. Joining us today is the rest of his medical care team at Memorial Sloan Kettering his colorectal surgeon, Dr. Marty Weiser, the chief of our hepatobiliary service, Dr. Bill Jarnigan, and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Monica Shaw. Thank you all for joining us. Sandy, Bill, Marty, and I met you back in 2015 when you were first diagnosed. It's the first time you're going public. So can you share your story with us? Sure. We had just clinched the National League East Championship in Cincinnati, and we had moved on to Philadelphia, where I was scheduled to get hernia surgery. And the doctor did an MRI in preparation for that surgery and discovered something entirely different. And a day later, I was referred to you and your team. And that's where the journey began. Bill, Marty, when Sandy came here, clearly this was not just a hernia operation or a benign problem. You want to share a little bit about that? It was clear that this was an intestinal cancer of some sort with spread of the disease. And, you know, as a liver surgeon, not the first person to talk to about treatment. The need was for other expertise, uh, Dr. Wise or Dr. Reedy, to get involved in managing this as an initial step. My involvement would come later. And then at that point, we secured the diagnosis of metastatic appendix cancer. And the treatment for that generally is surgery to remove as much disease as possible, called a cytoreductive surgery. And so we planned the surgery. Dr. Jarnigan and I actually operate on the same day. We collaborate frequently. I started the operation and it wasn't this well-differentiated appendix cancer that can be easily debulked. So we made a game time decision to stop the surgery, to abort that first operation 
so as not to affect future surgeries that would later be successful after a round of chemotherapy. So in the operating room, I called you, Diane, I talked to Bill, and we decided we would give chemotherapy first and then come back another day to fight another battle. Sandy, how'd that make you feel? Because here you are expecting you're going to wake up and be like, okay, done, moving on to next play. And it wasn't exactly what we were hoping or expecting. So I can remember sitting in the recovery room and looking at the clock. And I had been told that this surgery was going to last, I don't know, nine or 10 hours or whatever the number was, but it wasn't two. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, this has only lasted two hours. I'm not sure what's going on here. And then as I woke up, there was sort of a phalanx of doctors in front of me, as I recall, saying plan B. It was a little bit of a surprise. I wouldn't say it was depressing, but it was certainly a recalibration over the next four or five days sitting in the hospital waiting to get out and thinking about the fact that there'd be another one. But I will say the most important thing was over the ensuing two or three days was the confidence that the doctors expressed, just the tone of voice the confidence that they had that this was a minor setback, something that would just require a different approach. I can remember virtually everything that was said to me during that first day in the hospital. Dr. Weiser came in and said, don't worry about it. And Diane came in and said, don't worry about it. And Dr. Jarnigan the same. So I didn't worry about it. And I think what I found over the last eight years is following the doctors and not worrying about it is a good approach on behalf of any patient. It is, it, and yet sometimes it's so hard for patients. And understandingly, it can be quite disappointing and, and devastating when you're expecting a surgery and you got to go to plan B. You did get some chemotherapy and thank heavens you had a beautiful response and went back to the operating room in 2016. How'd that go? That went great. The only problem with that surgery was that I missed Bartolo Colon's only <laughs> lifetime home run. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, it went really well. And Bill and Marty, you're both surgical oncologists. You do this all day long. You could probably take out anything anywhere. And yet both of you were in that operating room to help. Can you speak a little bit about the expertise even in the operating room? Because in some places you may have one general surgeon that's doing the treatment itself and the surgery, which can be quite overwhelming depending on the surgery that you're actually undergoing. To keep up the baseball analogy, the bench is quite deep here. And there are a lot of people that we can call on. You're always better as a team than as an individual. And we don't hesitate to call someone in. It's not a sign of weakness. It's really a sign of strength. That's what we did here. And it was very successful. The chemotherapy worked beautifully and we were able to remove all visible disease and we were all quite happy. And his recovery was pretty straightforward considering the massive operation he had. Thankfully, it was a success. A couple of years later, the cancer did come back or when we say come back, really what we meant is that there were microscopic cells that were still there that eventually started to grow and been off and on therapies since then. But Sandy, I want to just go back to the fact that not only were you postseason in this like hurricane of lots of different things going on all at once in your original diagnosis, but you were clearly in a really high profile role at the time and you wanted to keep it on the down low. But what is that like for you when you are kind of dealing with a lot of stuff and certainly had your friends and family for support, but yet there is a certain responsibility in those high-profile jobs. Do you say something? Do you not say something, et cetera? It's a very good question and one that I've wrestled with over time. 
given the fact the Mets were in the postseason and ultimately got to the World Series, it just wasn't the right time to disclose any sort of information that would have been a distraction, you know, distraction for the players or staff. So pretty much kept it to myself for, I don't know, a month or so. That was, wouldn't say it was difficult. It was unusual thinking about it and sort of having to internalize it without talking about it much beyond my family. But one of the reasons that I didn't disclose the exact nature of the cancer for so long is that I didn't want to really be identified by it. And I felt that if I disclosed the type of cancer it was, there'd be doctors or people opining frequently over probabilities of this or that and what have you. And that's something I didn't want. In fact, something I've pretty much ignored over the last eight years. I spent a lot of time dealing with analytics and probabilities in baseball, but ultimately got to play the game. And sometimes we overload players with too much information. And rightly or wrongly, the approach I've taken is, look, I have total confidence in the medical team. They've demonstrated their entitlement to that confidence more than once. I don't spend a lot of time second guessing. And I think many of our listeners, that resonates because we don't want the cancer to define who we are. It's a part of you know, the reality of what you have to deal with, but it doesn't have to define you and, and who you are. And patients will tell me, like, people look at me a different way or talk to me in a different way. And that could be a lot. Yeah. And there's no question about that. And they often evaluate you through that lens as well. For example, if I'm trying to be patient and make a measured decision, that's kind of my style as opposed to that's a function of the disease. No, it's not. But at the same time, that's the way that things can be characterized. You also sort of leaned in to the role you were playing as a leader and in your profession because it was therapeutic, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it could go both ways. Like at some point you may be like, maybe I don't need to run this marathon in the middle of really strong chemo that you're getting every two weeks. I've always been able to compartmentalize, which I think is valuable. I don't worry about the next scan three or four months in advance. I've also found that the busier I am, the better I do. So that was also the back of my mind. I think you stay busy, you have less time to think about certain things. And that doesn't mean you forget about them entirely. But at the same time, I think it's great to have a distraction. Certainly, I felt that was true in my case. So throughout the years, as we said, you've been on and off chemotherapy treatments. And then last July, we certainly had a curveball thrown to us that I think no one expected. When you develop Lyme disease and babesiosis, two tick-borne illnesses, that's when you met Dr. Monica Shaw. You were quite sick and in the hospital. And so, Monica, could you share a little bit about why Sandy may have gotten a little bit sicker than others and the sort of events that took place then? You were in the hospital when we met. Just to speak a little bit about these illnesses, I'm going to put Lyme disease aside because that's not really what made you truly sick in this situation. It was the babesiosis. And babesia is a tick-borne parasite that infects red blood cells. So I like to say it's the malaria of the United States, certainly the malaria of the northeastern United States and parts of the upper Midwest. And what can happen sometimes with babesiosis vast majority of people who get it may not even know that they're infected. They become asymptomatic. But some people can get really ill, seriously ill, and it can be life-threatening. And in some patients um, who've had certain types of therapies or 
certain parts of their body removed, which was in your case, your spleen removed as a part of your cancer cytoreductive surgery. The Babesia infection has a chance to proliferate. Our spleen is an important filtration system for our blood cells. So when you don't have a spleen, your body is not able to clear those infected red blood cells as well. And so what happened here is that when you came in, it was pretty clear you had an infection and you got sicker quite quickly and you went to the ICU. Your parasite load or the percentage of your red blood cells that were infected was really quite high. So we needed to give you some specialized treatments and they worked beautifully, but it definitely took a few days to work and you've really made a remarkable recovery. I was really fortunate because when I went in, I had tested positive for COVID. And so maybe this is a heavy case of COVID. And when I got in, I, various tests were done and this babesiosis was uncovered pretty quickly. And had I not been at MSK, it could have been a very different outcome. I'm lucky that you have that infectious disease department that provides kind of a specialized approach for cancer patients. But once again, I fell into the right hands. I will say again, cancer is a team sport and it requires not only our cancer-focused clinicians, our surgeons and oncologists, but the specialists who see cancer patients through the lens of their discipline. That was a pretty tumultuous time, but here's the clincher. Here's the silver lining, miraculous part of all of this. You were discharged from the hospital and a couple of weeks later, after many, many weeks off all chemotherapy and being so sick, we get a follow-up scan, and the disease that we used to see on imaging is no longer there, and it actually shrinks. So babesiosis is our new chemotherapy here. And Bill, Marty, Monica, anyone want to talk about, like, have we seen this before? Can we make any sense of this scientifically about how that could potentially happen? And this is going back hundreds of years, what we would call toxin-based immunotherapy or bacterial immunotherapy or Cooley's toxin, which were basically bacterial products that are, you know, obviously formed in the setting of bacterial infections were used in medicines that might have caused a regression of tumors. And of course, cancer-directed immunotherapy is quite honestly now an established field, different mechanism of action, but this probably represents the earliest form of immunotherapy. I don't think any of us can prove that it was the babesiosis that caused the regression, but it is compelling. I wouldn't recommend it as an approach because um, there are quite, quite a, lot, a lot of harms associated. Don't do this at home. Yeah, do, yeah. please folks, <laughs> don't get infected intentionally. Obviously that's the harm of the Cooley's toxin approach and which is why it is not used in modern practice these days and that there are safer ways to unleash our immune system without using bacterial byproducts to do so. Although we can never prove causation, but it is certainly a real silver lining in your story, Mr. Alderson. It was a shock, but like I said at the outset, you gotta play the game, right? And you don't know what's gonna happen. And this was an incredible turn of events. Diane, it's an interesting approach that Sandy has. He's mentioned it before that you have to play the game. And Bill and I just had clinic today and we see newly diagnosed cancer patients and they really want the playbook, as Monica said. They want to know how it's going to go in every possibility. And we just don't know. We have to make game time decisions all the time and then follow those through. So it's something to learn from, but it's hard to do. And Sandy was particularly good at going with the flow. 
you know, I'm also extraordinarily lucky. There are others who've been diagnosed with cancers that are proved to be far more deadly. I've used the poker analogy. You get dealt a hand and sometimes it's, it's not a good one. You play it the best you can. I have a tremendous amount of respect for those who fight the good fight spiritually, but have been dealt a really terrible hand. Fortunately, mine has not been as bad as many, many others. I think that's absolutely right. That's one of the first things that all of us try to share with a patient, that there's something about the biology of that cancer that we can't change. And so I may give exactly the same regimens as Bill and Marty may do the exact same surgery and Monica may treat patients that have infections and it just doesn't go the way we want. So I do think that's a really important message to convey. Sandy, does your love of sports actually get you through the day though? Anything that you might share with us that actually gives you that faith and sort of calmness that many patients aren't able to achieve? This is, has not been the case over the entire eight years, but I have gotten to the point where I don't worry about it because as time has gone on, my expectation has evolved. It's not my expectation that it'll never come back, but it is my expectation that if it does come back, I and we will deal with it. So from that standpoint, I worry less about it. But I've been through it enough so that the next whatever doesn't surprise me one way or the other. The thing about baseball, too, is that I've been in the game 40 years. I've been in the World Series four times. That's not a great batting average, but it's typical or better. That probably tempers one's expectations. So deal with the disappointment, but at the same time, recognize that there's always tomorrow. There's always next season. There's always something to look forward to. You raise an important point that a lot of patients have trouble with, and that is to try and in between scans, in between treatments, to try and live as normal a life as possible, which many people can't do. It's tough. They're always focusing on the next scan. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people miss out on a lot of life because of that. I would say that was probably true for me initially. And it took a while to get out of that little spiral. And again, it's a function of one's own outlook family and friends and work or some sort of diversion that just limits the number of hours a day you can think about. That's the first step. I think one thing that you said earlier really resonated with me, which is sort of just your approach in terms of compartmentalization and having those distractions. And that can be really critical and healthy in this circumstance. If you can put the cancer in a box and you go to that box when you need to go to that box, but that box is not the only box. That is really, really hard for a lot of our patients. Sandy, any parting advice for our listeners? Well, look, I'm one person. I've got one set of data. But what I guess I would recommend is that people offload a lot of their anxiety as much as they possibly can to their medical team and develop a reliance on that team and less reliance on kind of third-party advice or suggestion or information. I don't want my mind filled with a bunch of statistics and stuff and try to figure where I or someone sits on the continuum of survival, I guess. I don't worry about that. I can't say that I did the first month or so. But since that time, as I've developed better understanding of my particular situation and the team that I have at MSK and my family and friends and so forth, I've worried less and less about it. Bill, Marty, Monica, any closing advice? Listen to the patient. <laughs> I'm listening to Mr. Alderson. Can't say it better than he did. That's right. Agree. Absolutely. Sandy, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to Cancer Straight Talk from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. For more information or to send us your questions, please visit us at mskcc.org podcast. Help others find this helpful resource by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Any products mentioned on the show are not official endorsements by Memorial Sloan Kettering. These episodes are for you, but are not intended to be a medical substitute. Please remember to consult your doctor with any questions you have regarding medical conditions. I'm Dr. Diane Reedy Lagunes. Onward and upward.